Tertium Organum by P. D. Spensky, read by Alice Flanagan, Chapter 10. Now, from the basis of those conclusions already made, let us seek to define how we may discover the real four-dimensional world obscured from us by the illusory three-dimensional world. C, in inverted commas, it may be by two methods, either by sensing it directly or developing the space sense and other higher faculties, which will be discussed later, or by understanding it mentally by a perception of its possible properties through the existence of the reason. By abstract reasoning, we have already come to the conclusions that the fourth dimension of space must lie in time, i.e. that time is the fourth dimension of space. We have discovered psychological proofs of this thesis, comparing the receptivity of the world by living beings of different grades of consciousness, snail, dog and man. We have seen how different from them are the properties of one and the same world, namely those properties which are expressed to us in the concepts of time and space. We have seen that time and space are sensed by each in a different manner, that what was for the lower being, the snail, is time, for the being standing one degree higher, the dog, becomes space, and that the time of this being becomes space to the being standing still higher, man. This is a confirmation that the supposition previously expressed, that our idea of time is complex in its substance, and that in it are properly concluded two ideas, that of a certain space and that of motion upon this space. Or to put the matter more exactly, the contact with a certain space of which we are not clearly conscious calls forth in us a sensation of motion upon that space, and all this taken together, i.e. the unclear consciousness of a certain space and the sensation of motion upon that space, we call time. This last confirms the conception that the idea of time has not arisen from the observation of motion existing in nature, but the very sensation and idea of motion has arisen from the time sense existing in ourselves, which is an imperfect sense of space, the fringe or limit of our space sense. The snail feels the line as space, i.e. as something constant, feels the rest of the world as time, i.e. as something eternally moving. The horse feels the plane as space. It feels the rest of the world as time. We feel an infinite sphere as space. The rest of the world, that which was yesterday and that which will be tomorrow, we feel as time. In other words, every being feels as space that which is grasped by his space sense. The rest he refers to time, i.e. the imperfectly felt is referred to time. Or it is possible to formulate the matter as thus. Every being feels as space that which, by the aid of his space sense, he is able to represent to himself in form, outside of himself, and that which he is not able thus to represent he feels as time, i.e. eternally moving, impermanent, or unstable, that is impossible to imagine in terms of form. The sense of space, space sense, is the power of representation by means of form. The infinite sphere by which we represent the universe to ourselves is constantly and continually changing, in every consecutive moment, it is not that which it was before. The constant change of pictures, images, relations is going on therein. It is for us as if it were on a screen of a cinemagraph upon which the swiftly running images of pictures appear and disappear. But where are the pictures themselves? Where is the light throwing the image upon the screen? Whence do the pictures come and where do they go? If the infinite sphere is the screen of the cinematograph, so our consciousness is the light penetrating through our psyche i.e. through the stores of our impressions, pictures, it, the light, throws upon the screen their images which we call life. 
But where do these impressions come from? From the same screen. And herein dwells the most incomprehensible mystery of life as we see it. We are creating it and we are receiving everything from it. Imagine a man sitting in an ordinary moving theatre. Imagine that he knows nothing of the construction of the cinematograph, nothing of the existence of the lantern behind his back, nor of the small transparent picture on the moving film. Let us imagine that he wants to study the cinematograph and begins to study that which proceeds on the screen, to make notes, to take pictures, to observe the order, to calculate and to construct hypotheses, and so forth. At what will he arrive? Evidently at nothing at all, unless he will turn his back to the screen and will begin to study the cause of the appearance of the pictures upon the screen. The cause is confined in the lantern, i.e. in consciousness, and in the moving films of pictures, in the psyche. These it is necessary to study, desiring to understand the cinematograph. Positive philosophy studies only the screen and the pictures passing upon it. For this reason it remains the eternal enigma. Where from are the pictures coming and where are they going? And why are they coming and going instead of remaining eternally the same? But it is necessary to study the cinematograph beginning with the source of light, i.e. with consciousness, then to pass on to the pictures on the moving film, and only after that to study the projected image. We have established that the animal, the horse, the cat, the dog, must perceive the immobile angles and curves of the third dimension as motion, i.e. as temporal phenomena. The question arises, do not we perceive as motion, i.e. the temporal phenomena, the immobile angles and curves of the fourth dimension? We ordinarily say that our sensations are the moments of the apprehension of certain changes proceeding outside of us, such as sound, light, etc., all vibrations of the ether. But what are these changes? Perhaps in reality there are no changes at all. Perhaps the immobile sides of angles of certain things which exist outside of us, of certain things which we know nothing about, only appear to us as motions, i.e. as changes. It may be that our consciousness, not being able to embrace these things with the aid of the organs of sense, and to represent them to itself in their entirety just as they are, and grasping only the separate moments of its contact with them, is constructing the illusion of motion, and conceives that something is moving outside of it, of consciousness, i.e., that the things are themselves moving. If such is the case, then motion must be in reality something only derived arising in our intellect during the contact with things which it does not grasp in their totality. Let us imagine that we are approaching an unknown city and that it is slowly growing up before us as we approach. It appears to us as though it is really growing up, i.e. as though it did not exist before. There disappeared the river, which was visible for so long a time. There appeared the bell tower, which was invisible before. Such, exactly, is our relation to time, which is a continual coming, arising, as it were, from nothing and going into naught. Everything lies for us in time, and only the section of a thing lies in space. Transferring our consciousness from the section of the thing to those parts of it which lie in time, we receive the illusion of motion on the part of the thing itself. It is possible to formulate the matter thus. The sensation of motion is the consciousness of the transmission from space to time, i.e. from a clear space sense to one which is unclear. With this in mind, it is not difficult to realise that we are receiving as sensations and projecting into the outside world as phenomena the immobile angles and curves of the fourth dimension. 
On this account, is it not necessary and possible to recognise that the world is immobile and constant, and that it seems to us to be moving and evolving simply because we are looking at it through the narrow slit of our sensuous receptivity? We are returning again to the question, what is the world and what is consciousness? But now the question concerning the relation of our consciousness to the world is beginning to formulate for us. If the world is a great something possessing the consciousness of itself, so are we rays of that consciousness, self-consciousness, but unconscious of the whole. If there be no motion, if it be an illusion, then we must search further. Whence could this illusion have arisen? The phenomena of life, biological phenomena, much resemble the transition through our space of certain four-dimensional circles, the circles being extremely complicated, each one consisting of a great number of interlaced lines. The life of a man or any other living being suggests a complicated circle. It begins at one point, birth, and ends at one point, death. We have the complete justification for supposing that this is one and the same point. The circles are large and small, but they begin and end similarly, and they end at the same point where they began, i.e. at the point of non-existence, from the physico-biological standpoint, or of some existence other than the psychological one. What is the biological phenomenon, the phenomenon of life? As science does not answer this question, this is an enigma. In the living organism, in the living cell, in the living protoplasm, there is something indefinable, differentiating living matter from dead matter. We recognise this something only by its functions. The chief of these functions is the power of self-reproduction, absent in the dead organism, the dead cell, dead matter. The living organism multiplies infinitely, incorporating and assimilating dead matter into itself. This ability to reproduce itself and to absorb dead matter with its mechanical laws is the inexplicable function of life, showing that life is not simply a complex of mechanical forces, as the positivist philosophy attempts to prove. This thesis, that life is not a complex of mechanical forces, is corroborated also by the incommensurability of the phenomena of mechanical motion with the phenomena of life. Life phenomena cannot be expressed in terms of mechanical energy, calories of heat or units of horsepower. Nor can the phenomena of life be artificially created by the physico-chemical method. If we shall regard every separate life as a circle of the fourth dimension, this will make it clear to us why every circle is inevitably escaping from our space. This happens because the circle inevitably ends at the same point at which it began, and the life of a separate being, beginning at birth, must end in death, which is the return to the point of departure. But during the transit through our space, the circle puts forth from it certain lines, which, uniting with others, yield new circles. In reality, of course, all proceeds quite otherwise. Nothing is born and nothing dies. It only represents itself to us because we see but the sections of things. In reality, the circle of life is only the section of something, and that something undoubtedly exists before birth, i.e. before the appearance of the circle in our space, and continues to exist after death i.e. after the disappearance of the circle from the field of our vision. To our observation, the phenomena of life are similar to the phenomena of motion, as these appear to the two-dimensional being, and therefore it may be that this is the motion of the fourth dimension. We have seen that the two-dimensional being is bound to regard the properties of the three-dimensionality of solids as motions, and the real motions of solids, 
going on in higher space as the phenomena of life. In other words, that motion which remains a motion in the higher space appears to the lower being as the phenomena of life, and that which disappears in higher space, transforming itself into the property of the immobile solid, appears to the lower being as mechanical motion. The phenomena of life, as the phenomena of motion, are just as incommensurable for us as are the two kinds of motion in its world for the two-dimensional being, one of these motions being real and the other illusory. Hinton says of this incommensurability, there is something in life not included in our conception of mechanical movement. Is this something a fourth-dimensional movement? If we look at it from the broadest point of view, there is something striking in the fact that where life comes in, there arises an entirely different set of phenomena from those of the inorganic world. Upon this basis, it is justifiable to assume that those phenomena which we call the phenomena of life are movements in higher space. Those phenomena which we call mechanical motion become in turn the phenomena of life in a space lower relatively to ours and in one higher simply the properties of immobile solids. This means that if we consider three kinds of existence, the two-dimensional, ours, and the higher-dimensional, then it will appear that the motion which is observed in the two-dimensional, all being in two-dimensional space, is for us a property of immobile solids. Life, as it is apprehended in two-dimensional space, is motion, as we observe it in our space. Moreover, motions in three-dimensional space i.e. all our mechanical motions and the manifestations of physico-chemical forces, light, sound, heat, etc., are only our sensations of some to us incomprehensible properties of four-dimensional solids, and our phenomena of life are the motions of solids of higher space which appear to us to be birth, growth and life of living beings. But if we presuppose a space not of four but of five dimensions, then in it the phenomena of life would probably appear as the properties of immobile solids, genus, species, families, peoples, races and so forth, and the motions would seem perhaps only the phenomena of thought. We know that the phenomena of motion or the manifestations of energy are involved with the expenditure of time, and we see how, with the gradual transcendence of the lower space by the higher, motion disappears, being converted into the properties of immobile solids, i.e., the expenditure of time disappears and the necessity for time. To the two-dimensional being, time is necessary for the understanding of the most simple phenomena, an angle, a hill, a ditch. For us, time is not necessary for the understanding of such phenomena, but it is necessary for the explanation of the phenomena of motion and physical phenomena. In a space still higher, our phenomena of motion and physical phenomena would probably be regarded independently of time as properties of immobile solids, and biological phenomena, birth, growth, reproduction, death, would be regarded as phenomena of motion. Thus we see how the idea of time recedes with the expansion of consciousness. We see its complete conditionality. We see that by time are designated the characteristics of a space relatively higher than the given space, i.e. the characteristics of the perceptions of a consciousness relatively higher than a given consciousness. For the one-dimensional being, all the indices of two, three, four-dimensional space and beyond lie in time. All this is time. For the two-dimensional being, time embraces within itself the indices of three-dimensional space, four-dimensional space, and spaces beyond. For man, i.e. the three-dimensional being, time contains the indices of four-dimensional space and the spaces beyond. 
Therefore, according to the degree of expansion and evolution of the consciousness and the forms of its receptivity, the indices of space are augmented and the indices of time are diminished. In other words, the growth of the space sense is proceeding at the expense of the time sense. Or one may say that the time sense is an imperfect space sense, i.e. an imperfect power of representation which, being perfected, translates itself into the space sense, i.e. into the power of representation in forms. If taking as a foundation the principles elucidated here, we attempt to represent to ourselves the universe very abstractly, it is clear that this will be quite other than the universe which we are accustomed to imagine to ourselves. Everything will exist in it always. This will be the universe of the eternal now of Hindu philosophy, a universe in which will be neither before nor after, in which will be just one present, known or unknown. Hinton feels that with the expansion of the space sense, our vision of the world will change completely, and tells us about this in his book, A New Era of Thought, page 66, and I quote, The conception which we shall form of the universe will undoubtedly be as different from our present one, as the Copernican view differs from the more pleasant view of a wide, immovable earth beneath a vast vault. Indeed, our conception of our place in the universe will be more agreeable than the thought of being on a spinning ball, kicked into space without any means of communication with any other inhabitants of the universe. End of quote. But what does the world of many dimensions represent in itself? What are these solids of many dimensions, the lines and boundaries of which we perceive as motion? A great power of imagination is necessary to transcend the limits of our perceptions and to mentally visualise the world in other categories even for a moment. Let us imagine some object, say a book outside of time and space. What will this last mean? Where we take the book out of time and space, it would mean that all books which have existed, exist now and will exist, exist together, i.e. occupy one and the same place and exist simultaneously, forming, as it were, one book which includes within itself the properties, characteristics and peculiarity of all books possible in the world. When we say simply a book, we have in mind something possessing the common characteristics of all books. This is a concept. But that book about which we are talking now possesses not only these common characteristics, but the individual characteristics of all separate books. Let us take other things, a table, a house, a tree, a man, let us imagine them out of time and space. The mind will have to open its doors to objects, each possessing such an enormous, such an infinite number of signs and characteristics that to comprehend them by means of reason is absolutely impossible. And if one wants to comprehend them by his reason, he will certainly be forced to dismember these objects somehow, to take them at first in some sense from one side and in one section of their being. What is man out of space and time? He is all humanity, man as the species, homo sapiens, but at the same time possessing the characteristics, peculiarity and individual marks of all separate men. This is you, and I, and Julius Caesar, and the conspirators who killed him, and the newsboy I pass every day, all kings, all slaves, all saints, all sinners, all taken together, fused into one indivisible being of man like a great living tree in which are bark, wood and dry twigs, green leaves, flowers and fruit. Is it possible to conceive of and understand such a being by our reason? The idea of such a great being inspired the artist or artists who created the Sphinx. When I saw the great Sphinx adjacent to the pyramids for the first time, not in a picture but in reality, 
I felt that it represented humanity, or the human race, or man in general, that being with the body of an animal and the face of a superman. And this is asterisked, and the asterisk says, In Search of the Wondrous, Volume 1 by P.D. Spensky, in Russian. But what is motion? Why do we feel it if it does not exist? About this last, Mabel Collins, a theosophical writer of the first period of modern theosophy, writes very beautifully in her poetical Story of the Year, and he quotes, The entire true meaning of the earthly life consists only in the mutual contact between personalities and in the efforts of growth. Those things which are called events and circumstances and which are regarded as the real contents of life are in reality only the conditions which make these contracts and this growth possible. End of quote. In these words there sounds already quite a new understanding of the real, and truly the illusion of motion cannot arise out of nothing. When we are travelling by train and the trees are running, overtaking one another, we know that this motion is an illusory one, that the trees are immobile, and that the illusion of their motion is created by our own. As in these particular cases, so also in general as regards all motion in the material world, the foundation of which the positivists consider to be motion in the finest particles of matter, we, recognising this motion as an illusory one, shall ask, is not an illusion of this motion created by some motion inside our consciousness? So it shall be, and having established this, we shall endeavour to define what kind of motion is going on inside our consciousness, i.e., what is moving relatively to what? H. B. Blavetsky, in her first book, Isis Unveiled, touched upon the same question concerning the relation of life and time to motion. She writes, and he quotes, As our planet revolves every year around the sun, and at the same time turns once in every 24 hours upon its own axis, thus traversing minor cycles within a larger one, so is the work of the smaller cyclic periods accomplished and recommenced. The revolution of the physical world, according to the ancient doctrine, is attended by a like revolution in the world of intellect, the spiritual evolution of the world proceeding in cycles like the physical one. Thus we see in history a regular alternation of the ebb and flow in the tide of human progress. The great kingdoms and empires of the world, after reaching the culmination of their greatness, descend again in accordance with the same law by which they ascended, till, having reached the lowest point, humanity reasserts itself and mounts up once more, the height of its attainment being, by the law of ascending progression by cycles, somewhat higher than the point from which it had before descended. The division of the history of mankind into gold and silver, copper and iron ages is not a fiction. We see the same thing in the literature of peoples. An age of great inspiration and unconscious productiveness is invariably followed by an age of criticism and consciousness. The one affords material for the analysing and critical intellect of the other. Thus all these great characters, who tower like giants in the history of mankind, like Buddha Siddhartha and Jesus in the realm of the spiritual, and Alexander the Macedonian, Napoleon the Great in the realm of the physical conquests, were but reflex images of human types which had existed 10,000 years before in the preceding decimillennium, reproduced by the mysterious powers controlling the destinies of our world. There is no prominent character in all the annals of sacred and profound history whose prototype we cannot find in the half-fictitious and half-real traditions of bygone religions and mythologies. As the star glimmering at the immeasurable distance above our heads in the boundless immensity of the sky reflects in the smooth waters of the lake, 
So does the imagery of men in the antediluvian ages reflect itself in the periods we can embrace in an historical retrospect. As above, so below, that which has been will return again, as in heaven, so on earth. End of quote. Anything that can be said about the understanding of temporal relations is inevitably extremely vague. This is because our language is absolutely inadequate to the spatial expression of temporal relations. We lack the necessary words for it. We have no verbal form, strictly speaking, for the expression of these relations which are new to us and some other quite new forms, not verbal, are indispensable. The language for the transmission of the new temporal relations must be a language without verbs. New parts of speech are necessary, an infinite number of new words. At present in our human language, we can speak about time by hints only. Its true essence is inexpressible for us. We should never forget about the inexpressibility. This is the sign of the truth, the sign of reality. That which can be expressed cannot be true. All systems dealing with the relation of the human soul to time, all ideas of post-mortem existence, the theory of reincarnation, and that of the transmigration of souls, that of karma, all these are symbols trying to transmit relations which cannot be expressed directly because of the poverty and weakness of our language. They should not be understood literally any more than it is possible to understand the symbols and allegories of art literally. It is necessary to search for their hidden meanings, that which cannot be expressed in words. The literal understanding of these symbolical forms in the latest theosophical literature and the union with them of the ideas of evolution and morals taken in the most narrow, dualistic meaning completely disfigures the inner content of these forms and deprives them of their value and meaning. End of chapter 10